you'll be able to create kind of a marketplace that is almost like the Uber of solar kind of in a way because of the physical simplicity. Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome back to your podcast, the show that seeks out that one simple change that could put us on a completely different timeline. Today, we're talking to a solar energy startup that's opened up this new possibility for utility scale projects and maybe even green hydrogen. They've done this not by developing a new technology, but by removing something that, when you actually think about it, might not be necessary at all. But before we chart this path to solar's new timeline, I'm your host, Lisa Ann Pinkerton. I support startups in the energy transition with the award-winning Technica Communications and everyone in this space with women in clean tech and sustainability. And if you're a regular on the show, I have one small ask of you. Would you please take a moment to share this podcast with someone in your life, somebody that you think would enjoy it and find it valuable? This is the small gift that you can give us today that's going to reap huge benefits for all of us as Earthlings. And if you're a regular listener, please consider contributing to Patreon and becoming a member of the show. You will help us financially in supporting all the lovely people working behind the scenes to make all of this possible. Yes, you heard me correctly. I'm not doing this on my own. There was no way I could do all of this on my own. And now, a moment from Resource Labs. The company setting solar on a course for a new timeline enjoys funding from the same VC firm that invested in SpaceX in the early days, Capricorn Investment Group. And if all goes well, we'll have utility-scale solar projects that can withstand a Class 4 hurricane and deliver the lowest cost of energy on the planet. Pretty good when you think our current timeline is one that needs vastly more renewable energy, more green hydrogen, and is going to be one where we might have uh, more frequent and more powerful natural disasters like hurricanes. Our guide to this preview of New Solar's future is Daniel Fanagan. He is the Chief Marketing and Product Officer at Earthos. That's the startup reinventing solar, literally from the ground up. So our CEO and founder, Jim Tyler, around the 2018 timeframe um, was pondering the basic question, well, if solar modules were free, just about, um, you know, thinking about how they're declining, how would you build a solar power plant? It was obvious uh, to him almost as soon as he asked the question that you just put the solar modules on the ground. That's clear if they're free. Um, His second question was, well, at what threshold, like at what solar module cost threshold um, does that remain true to? And he determined that would be up to about, you know, 40 cents a watt DC, somewhere in that. So basically anything, any any, uh, uh, module cost environment, 40 cents or below, he concluded through simple modeling um, for the same energy output, your LCOE is going to be better if you forego building trackers and you simply put the modules on the ground. Mm-hmm. So that's how he came to the initial thought around which he built the team and the technology. And it, let's let's dive into that a little bit further. So the thought process is the 
you know, if the cost of solar is zero, then what you're looking at is all the cost for the trackers and the racking and the everything that goes into that. And so then your brain starts to think, well, why do I have to pay for that? Is there a way for me to eliminate that cost too? Yeah, so starting with cost, um, it, it reduces the levelized cost of energy by 20%. And the way we do that is by um, eliminating a lot of steel from the project. The basic uh, sort of energy and dollars economics of it is that if a um, tracker, as it does, say, gives you 20% more energy yield per solar module, at the current low price of solar panels, it's more economical to simply add more solar modules to the site. And then you get for the same energy output. But now you have much less steel, no underground work, no trenching, no pile driving. Uh, you're, you're only requiring about a half to a third of the land. So the costs in aggregate go down uh, tremendously. So that's on the cost side. Um, on the complexity side, um, it's difficult, or at least it takes a while to optimize a solar power plant with trackers because there's more complexity in terms of topography, row spacing, how to get that optimal configuration on the site um, just takes some time. Um, and um, when you take that away and you have mostly flat um, modules, contiguous, no row spacing considerations, no subsurface variability, like is it hard soil, is it soft soil, what kind of soil, all that kind of stuff. Same with wind loads. Um, all these things Earthos is kind of immune to. Um, uh, the, the, that complexity doesn't affect it. Um, and so what we're able to do is generate designs and indicative cost quotes um, in an automated process uh, within minutes um, versus take, taking weeks or months to really get to an optimized design for a, a, a tracker plant. Um, in terms of the installation speed piece, um, you're just eliminating um, whole phases of construction. Um, and, and think of it too, like you're only, you're only operating on like half or a third of the area. So everything is much closer in. You're not driving piles. You're not building steel structures. It's just very fast. Um, and then on the carbon footprint um, side of the equation, uh, it's primarily around the steel. Steel is a very you know large carbon footprint material, <clears throat> and we use uh, very, very little of it. Yeah, and you're not transporting all that steel to the site either. Correct. And then you say, well, is there any reason why I can't put the solar modules on the ground? And uh, one of the first uh, concerns Jim had was was heat, was temperature. Mm -hmm. you know, the, one of the first things he did was to do some basic tests around thermal performance and discovered that um, solar modules behave well, actually, on the Earth, even in very hot environments. Um, although there's no airflow around them or very little airflow around them, um, they are in direct contact with the Earth, which does act as a heat sink and there's thermal transfer. So if you look at um, heat transfer coefficients for different solar applications, uh, basically Earthos is not as good as a tracker <clears throat> that ha or a fixed tilt that has modules out in the open air, um, but much better than uh, a rooftop, like a flush rooftop uh, environment. 
and kind of on par with like a commercial, like a CNI uh, ballasted flat roof type installation. So it's well within the mm-hmm. realm of, of normal solar uh, use. What about what happens when it rains or how do you handle the water situation? Sites go through all the standard um, civil engineering treatment that any site would go through. So this includes proper drainage, retention basins, um, et cetera. Um, On a solar plant, we uh, site or grade for positive drainage. So you're not, you're not creating, you know, pools. Um, So, um, so, you have um, uh, natural drainage um, across the site. Um, and in the event that there is any temporary uh, submersion of the modules, uh, it turns out modules are okay with that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and we've tested that and we've seen that firsthand. Uh, nonetheless, a solar module plan uh, performs better if it's not underwater. So. Uh, yeah, we, we generally uh, d- do the civil design to avoid avoid submersion. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we had um, you know an incredible winter last year in California where all of our initial sites you know were installed, and I'm happy to say they all did uh, very very well and are performing uh, to to full capacity today. Uh, a lot of people think that uh, the solar modules might be vulnerable to wind, but actually. Um, our system has the highest wind rating in the industry, it, you know, rated up to 194 mile per hour uh, winds. And that was actually the ideal for, for hurricane regions. Um, so it's just another kind of um, curious benefit that's you know, a little bit counterintuitive, but, but actually um, creates one of the main um, differentiation factors technologically for the Earth system. So uh, we'll put some pictures up on on the on the website and in the video so that people can see what this looks like. Yeah. How many projects do you have going right now, or uh, if you can give us some uh, understanding of of what's installed so far and and how it's been performing? Yeah. So there's about just under three megawatts uh, in operation currently. There's about. 14 megawatts uh, that are in um, uh, just about building phase. They're they're just about getting ready to ship. Um, so those will be getting built uh, in the months to come. Um, we also just announced another 34 megawatt uh, portfolio that'll sort of be our next tranche of, of installs going in. And we have two uh, over 100 megawatt projects under contract, including one we just announced, uh, which is a 180 megawatt project uh, in Mississippi. Very cool, very cool. So it sounds like you're, even though you're not doing the dredging and the and the pile driving and all this stuff to put in trackers or or ground mounted solar uh, systems, you are preparing the land so that it it operates the way you want it to. The sites that we've installed and and are in you know have designed or or are in design phase on um, have all required very minimal um, civil engineering and site work. Mm-hmm. At a minimum, you come in and do what we call disc and roll, where you're basically getting you know larger rocks and you know uh, vegetative material and stuff like that you know out of the way and rolled smooth. Um, but our system doesn't require a flat surface. It's not, it's not, um, 
the, the, the joints between modules are flexible. So, so the array kind of lays on the earth kind of like a blanket and it can conform to the contours uh, of the land. So uh, we can go up to a 15% slope in terms of the, in terms of the robot performance. Okay. Yeah. You mentioned the cleaning robot is um, how does that operate? And it's, it's operating every day. Cause I assume when you have panels closer to the ground, they're going to get dustier. Yes. If you didn't have a cleaning robot, solar modules on the ground would be more soiled uh, than if they're up on a tracker or a, or a fixed tilt array. Mm -hmm. uh, with the robot, uh, they are less soiled. Um, so it turns into an advantage. Yeah. So yeah, each, each, um, we call them, we call it the earth bot. Uh, each earth bot services two megawatts AC, um, of, of array and, uh, goes out every night and cleans. It's a dry brush operation. It's a nylon, nylon brush and it, uh, is autonomously guided. It's a RTK or, um, um, RTK, uh, GPS and vision sensor um technology that uh guides it around the array out and back to its charging dock at night mm -hmm. and i assume that it's able to to charge itself based on the solar that's generated from the site it it can be it depends on the design but it it can come off the because there's a grid connection there too so mm -hmm. it all kind of flows back and forth okay so it's really fascinating to me to think of of solar just on the ground. I think it's really cool because to me, I can see how it's just, it seems a lot more efficient and simple. How does this then open up new aspects of, of solar generation for additional activities or additional futures that you might not have thought of had you not considered just putting the solar on the ground? Well, it, it, it gets you and it can open up opportunities for sites that would be otherwise particularly problematic um, for conventional systems. Um, for instance, like say landfills where, or any kind of like problematic subsurface stuff going on there where you, you, you can't really drive piles into it or dig trenches and so on. Since we're right on the surface, um, you can do an earthos plant in those, in those cases. So if you have an area that has a lot of community opposition, say, um, bringing an Earthos system in um, could be the key to success there. Um, because you can't see it. I mean, yeah, you can see it. Um, it kind of looks like it looks like water, basically. Yeah, that's what I meant. You know, depending on your 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 angle, but it's you know it's thirty five millimeters tall, um, and it's it's a half to a third of the land uh, occupied. So um, from that point of view, um, that opens up a lot of opportunity. Um, and then also just land constrained sites. So you might have, you know, an ideal, uh, interconnect location. Um, but the, the available land is just tight. And now all of a sudden you can get your capacity, um, on a half or a third of the land. And so you're good now. So a lot of challenging sites, projects that could otherwise be underwater or just untenable can become tenable and profitable if you bring Earthos in. I love that because we we definitely need a lot more solar if we're going to achieve the energy transition that um, that we you know collectively feel like we need to turn back some of the worst effects of climate change. And then you think about you know generating this you know renewable energy for electric vehicles and for green hydrogen and all of these other activities. 
it seems to me you make those activities much more viable when you can reduce the cost of the solar installation so dramatically. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, uh, you know, green hydrogen is definitely on um, most people's minds who, you know, have interest in the energy transition. Green hydrogen is going to be solar to hydrogen, right? So with Earthos, we're bringing down the cost of the solar DC side of the equation by 20%. That's a huge contribution to getting to where we need to be in terms of parity for green, for green hydrogen. Yeah, yeah. So so what's your vision for Earthos? Like if we're looking at the company, say five, ten years from now, what what do you what do you envision for this this new way of of generating solar power? I envision certainly a large percentage of the utility scale market um having adopted um our approach. Mm-hmm. That would cover the sort of the, the physical part of it. You're going to be flying over the desert at night. And you're going to see little robot lights going, you know, down, and, and you're going to just say, "Oh, there's an Earthos system." I'm, you know, I'm sure that that's going to be the future. Um, but more than just the nuts and bolts physicality of of the Earthos system, there's a whole host of things that underpins that enables um, more on the side of of um, automation um, and taking advantage of how simple it is also in when also getting into the realm of how solar projects are developed. And like I was saying, you know, at the beginning of the podcast, um, facilitating the coordination of all the different parts of the puzzle that need to go in. So with Earthos, what I see in the future is that with a push of a button, you're going to be able to generate um, indicative term sheets for, the debt provider for the tax equity provider um, for the for the project purchaser like right off the bat and that you'll be able to create kind of a uh, a marketplace that is almost like the uber of solar kind of in a way things that you can do because of the physical simplicity of earthos because wind is not going to change those numbers because the condition of the soil under the surface is not going to change those numbers because so many externalities that make it impossible to pin pin those down adequately for a conventional system that can be done uh, in an earthos in an earthos uh, ecosystem so yeah i see uh, a highly automated uh, ecosystem technologically as well as the whole sort of deal ecosystem of how solar is deployed and i think that without that just the complexity of development could very well be a uh, significant bottleneck in in the energy transition. So, we we think that the the uh, implications of of utter simplicity um, are going to keep keep unfolding in our world, and we're going to really try to to drive that towards the benefit of the energy transition. Yeah, thank you. The it, we hear a lot in the industry about the bankability of products projects, mm-hmm. and it seems to me like. Like you say, this the the physical simplicity of the Earthos system would then lead to giving financiers and investors greater confidence in solar generally, because, like you said, you've removed all of these variables that can be kind of hard to to pin down ahead of time. Yep, exactly. Um, so I can see I can see a future where. It's just like you say, it's just easier to get these things up and installed, A, because it's physically more simplistic, 
B, it, it takes less time. It's less expensive um, than the conventional methods, but also people have greater confidence in it. So it might be easier to find more investors or better paybacks. Yep. And, and known terms, right? So like I said, you, you can kind of create a, a marketplace that, you know, creates rapid or entices rapid participation in moving projects forward. Earthlings, this type of stuff fascinates me. By looking at a current way of doing something from a totally different perspective, you come up with a solution that opens up all of these new possibilities that would never have happened any other way. This is what we call leadership. And what Earthos has done, removing all this complexity around designing a site, means that you're taking something that is a one-off custom exercise with a tremendous amount of engineering time and effort put into it, many, many months, you're, you're removing all that complexity and you're making something more standardized, maybe a bit more cookie cutter, if you will. And, and that makes it easier to finance, makes these things more bankable for all kinds of reasons and makes it faster to get these projects off the ground. So keep your sensors pointed at Earthos while we watch their revolutionary take on utility scale solar literally pull the rug out from the competition. Today's Restoring Faith in Humanity segment comes to us from London, where Buckingham Palace and the prestigious British Empire Medal are honoring physicist Dr. Jessica Wade. The recognition is for Dr. Wade's passion for encouraging more women to pursue STEM careers by highlighting the thousands of deserving scientists who never got their due on Wikipedia, let alone from their colleagues or employers. So in the past six years, Dr. Wade has written more than 1,750 Wikipedia biographies. And if you have ever attempted to write or update something on Wikipedia, you know how detailed and tedious that exercise can be. My goodness, hats off to you, Dr. Wade. This is a big deal because as of this writing, 19% of English Wikipedia biographies are about women. 19%. And while that's still a low number, we owe Dr. Wade a tremendous amount of appreciation and gratitude for helping increase that number to get it to where it is today. Now she's expanding this effort to nominating top female scientists and scientists of color for major prizes and fellowships. This woman deserves sainthood. So in your world this week, take a moment to imagine something that you could do for others to inspire a new future on this beautiful blue-green space flower that we call home. Hey, listeners. This show is a part of the Resource Labs Network. It's a curated collective of industry leaders who are accelerating the clean energy transition. If you want to find out more, visit us at resourcelabs.co.